from the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, welcome to In Social Work. I'm Peter Sabota. Like everything else currently in the world we're changing, it'll be gradual. But the In Social Work podcast is getting a makeover. We'll be expanding our focus, our format, and our website, amongst other changes. Watch it unfold. And we are really interested in what you think about our work and invite you to participate in the conversation along with us. As part of the renewal of the podcast, I will become the sole host and conduct all or most of the interviews. For this soft launch of our renewal, I actually got selfish and I chased a topic consuming me and maybe a lot of other social work educators. The recent escalation in racist, anti-immigrant, and xenophobic narratives in our society present critical challenges for social work educators and students committed to racial justice and anti-racism. Schools of social work across the U.S. and Canada have renewed, and in some cases started, their commitment to racial equity and anti-racism. As a proud social worker and a social work educator myself, I believe it's healthy and important to have an occasional lover's quarrel with our profession. Can I say it? In recent decades, the presence of anti-racist practice in social work education has seemed to lost its prominence. A concerning development in a profession whose practice is premised on the values of social justice and improving the social functioning of human beings in their communities. That bothered and humbled me. So I started combing the literature to try and better understand this apparent paradox. Nothing I read in the literature and in media grabbed me and held my attention as hard as Dr. Donna Jeffrey's 2005 article, What Good is Anti-Racist Social Work If You Can't Master It? Exploring a Paradox in Social Work Anti-Racist Education. Here's another paradox while we're at it. Donna's article is 16 years old, so that's evidence that she wasn't ignoring social justice. And she's been incredibly prescient about the current struggles we face. But now the troubling part, in terms of progress. 16 years later, her conceptualization and article read like they could have been written yesterday. Ouch. So I chased Dr. Jeffrey down. And now, from the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada, I got the chance to talk with Donna Jeffrey. Donna Jeffrey, PhD, is Associate Professor and the Interim Director of the School of Child and Youth Care at the University of Victoria. Her research and teaching interests include feminist, critical race, and post-structural scholarship in the context of pedagogy, policy, knowledge production, professional identity, and social work education. I spoke with Dr. Jeffrey in May of 2021. Hi, Donna, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Peter. Thanks for inviting me. I just got to get right to it. Why is it so difficult to educate and build and be an anti-racist social worker? Well, that's a big question. It's interesting that you found the 2005 article still relevant because it's funny when I, I've been recently thinking about it myself and wondering if I were to write the kind of sequel to this, what would I write? What is the story right now in social work? And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I am a faculty member in the School of Social Work here at UVic, and I've been teaching here since 2002. There's been lots to kind of preoccupy all of us as we kind of see the reiterations of how we think about exclusion, marginalization, dominance, as we try and think through all these things. 
I kind of go back to the article in that sense. So why is it hard? I don't know. I can tell you why these people <laughs> I interviewed way back when. This is part of my dissertation work. And one of my interests at the time, I was at OISE, which is the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. I had wonderful teachers and they really got me thinking about what is going on in professional education. So professions like social work. How do we imagine how it's possible to talk about racism within those parameters? What is it possible to say? How do we frame the problems? And so I started off reading a report that came from a, a task force in the Canadian Association of Social Work Education. And they were meeting between 89 and 91. Wow. And they were identifying, particularly the sort of educators of color across the country, they were identifying what they were trying to get included into the curriculum to talk about race and racism with social work students and to be teaching this important work. So there I was sitting in the year 2000, reading this and thinking, it doesn't sound that different. Where, you know, how far have we come? So to that end, I got into the archives of the CASWE and I interviewed educators across the country who sort of identified as people teaching critical social work, trying to take up some of these issues. And several of them had been on the task force. So that kind of made it, you know, especially interesting to talk about what change they'd seen. Anyway, out of those interviews, I learned that there was quite a divide between what it meant to be an anti-racist social worker and what it meant to actually do anti-racist or different kinds of critical social work. And that's the dilemma or this paradox that I could see so clearly in the data was a lot of our and, and maybe I'll ask you if that's been true in your own institution. A lot of that early pedagogy seemed to be built around self-location. Notions of self-locate was an important starting place. Sometimes it wasn't made clear self-locate to what end. What does self-locating do? Also, I think the other thing that I noticed was this rather quick shift from talking about anti-racist education to anti-oppressive education, teaching the AOP social worker. It's interesting to watch the shifts in language and and then wonder about what actually changed. Before you go on, can I ask you to back up just a little bit? Sure. Because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was what you just said about what you learned about the difference between what it means to be a social worker and what's meant to do or practice social work. Right. I had to read that a couple of times before I think I know what you were talking about. Can you maybe explain that in a slightly different way so that at least the folks who are listening understand the difference that you see there? Sure. What I was noticing was that critical race theory, for example, thinking about anti-racism was kind of seen as something too theoretical, rather abstract, kind of heady, and it didn't translate well into practice. And so we've all experienced the social work classroom, I think, where there's the conceptual, but people want to know what to do. This theory-practice divide, which seems to go back maybe, I don't know, a very long way. And I find it to be such a not helpful divide because acting comes out of somewhere. You think something, right? And actions, of course, are informed. And we learn a lot about what we think through what we go do. So they inform each other so much. So I found it interesting when these educators that I was interviewing were talking about how students were being encouraged to think about privilege, to become aware of their kind of privileged status, what it meant to have white privilege, sort of Piggy McIntosh's work. 
and becoming more self-aware. And I think the divide I was seeing was there was an assumption made that a more self-aware person will ultimately be a better social work practitioner. Or even know what to do. Yes. Once you go out into the real world, right? And you're talking with real life human beings, what's the bridge between Mm -hmm. all this kind of self-reflection? And that part, I got to tell you, that part really fascinated me because I think I was guilty of that assumption myself. Yeah. I mean, we all hope that some insights will mean that we will act differently. But what was becoming clear in the interview data was that practice wasn't really thought of as any different. Practice still looked like practice as usual. We knew what good practice was, thank you. But now you need me to be something different, and that is to be more self-aware. And by being self-aware, I'll understand the ways in which I'm dominant or I'm marginalized, whatever my positionality is. If I understand that better, then I will just go be a better practitioner without looking at, well, what is practice? And how is practice steeped in these legacies of dominance, colonization, and all kinds of everyday practices of power? People were doing their best to understand themselves and their privilege and their whiteness. There were a lot of white students in social work and and still are. But I certainly, you know, we can talk about admissions policies later. So that meant that there would be this kind of anger in classrooms. My participants would talk about sort of students that were fed up. Like, okay, I have self-located many, many times. Now, what do you want me to go do? Will I do it differently? I don't know. But now teach me how not to go out and make that mistake. I now know I'm going to make mistakes unless I'm more self-aware. But you haven't told me yet what the new toolkit looks like that will be a more informed toolkit. Well, I still have to go into this agency and do my child protection work, or I still have these same policies to work under. So what is it you're asking of me? This paradox I ended up with was this distinction between what it means to be this new self-aware person and worker and what it means to go out and practice as a progressive practitioner. But what will I do differently? Didn't you caution against doing anti-racist social work as simply a competency? Yes, that again came through the data. A professional education is all about becoming competent, right? These sets of competencies, how you have to kind of demonstrate these and meet these and feel like you're going out to be competent, able social worker who won't harm people at a minimum, you know? Anyway, and so... What I think we were in peril of doing is becoming the anti-racist social worker into one more competency to demonstrate and meet. That's a very kind of dead-end analysis because then you, you sort of find students asking, well, just show me what to do so I don't go out and make a racist mistake or yeah. say the wrong thing. This toolkit that will now... I guess, stop me from making those kinds of egregious errors. It was really problematic. If we're based in competencies and being professionals, then that part never got scrutinized for the baked-in power relations and the profession's own history. So maybe students are clamoring. We could talk about maybe why. I don't want to make this sound like I'm blaming, but students are almost asking early on in their training and develop as professionals, how to manage and control racism. 
Well, management is a key tool, right? And that became, you know, if we think about liberal, neoliberal context, being able to manage diversity, right? Manage difference becomes yet another skill. Yeah, that's a hard word, manage, right? That was the other thing that was interesting was that diversity was seen as something new and it was a problem and had to be managed. And these were all things that had to be unpacked for students that saw themselves as, oh, there's this new thing. There's a lot of difference and I have to learn better management tools. This whole idea of management of diversity, I mean, what it does is take these progressive or even radical theoretical changes, right, that we want to bring to the way social work is kind of how it does its job. And some people ask, can it be rehabilitated given its history? I don't know if that's a very useful question either, but it's how to take these radical concepts and translate them for students who understand themselves to be good neoliberal subjects who are competent and know how to do the job. And this tension again between what are we trying to teach and where does it take students? So maybe we've all had the experience of white students feeling rather consumed for a period of timeless shame and guilt and those kinds of responses to understanding themselves as participants in dominance. I'm always trying to work with students to think about discursive production of your subjectivity. Big words, but thinking in in post-structural terms, right? This idea of discourse and, you know, text and talk and whatever, anything that has meaning and how we come to desire to be. So I would, you know, to talk to students about what's a good social worker. How do we come to want what we want that we know that's good and I want to be that? Most of the students who I meet, by far, they want to be good at what they're doing. Absolutely. They're they're very driven, and man, it is really hard to argue with that. But I'm struck by if those well-intentioned folks, people of goodwill, to be honest, if they actually do the self-reflective piece and the self-examination piece well, that's going to bring them closer and closer to some very, very uncomfortable realizations, I think. And so aren't you kind of left with, if you do the deep dive around self-reflection, I'm not only a part of this so-called problem, if I'm a white student, I've benefited from it. Absolutely. Now you're faced with this kind of like really, I think, really tough, demanding dilemma. I'm having an increasing awareness that I'm a beneficiary of racism. That's, I think that's a very kind of productive thing. You can do a lot working with students who really want to do their job well, and they really care about people. We have students coming into social work, typically they kind of like people, and they want to help. So this notion of help, even taking that idea apart, to start understanding that there is no place of innocence here. Yeah, that's rough. But it can also be exciting because if you have been produced to kind of think of yourself as this innocent, benign helper, if that's kind of what you've been produced to be, then you can be something else. I kind of see in the classroom the excitement and possibility about working with these desires to do good work, but at the same time, kind of interrogating this desire for innocence or to find the innocent ground to stand on 
we're asking students to do that at the same time they're standing on it. And while they're just really almost even being socialized for many of them into this profession. Yes. And its values. And and that gets hard, right? When you start talking about, well, I'm Canadian context, so I'll go kind of West Coast. When we start talking about the role of social work in nation building, and we go way back residential schools, but before that, morality and prohibition and the role of early social work as a professional. I mean, there were all kinds of communities, right? Marginalized communities with their own, we wouldn't call it social work, but their own kind of community practices of helping. But I think about the profession itself and its role in nation-making, then it becomes really important, I think, to go back and see the profession's history and how we can talk now about it is absolutely steeped in colonial legacies. And every one of these we have to encounter. That's why in the classroom, I think that it's just always fun to start noticing what feels like common sense. What are these moments of, well, we just do it that way? These moments of a practice being naturalized, or we just do it that way, or it makes sense to do it this way, or these places of comfort are often really good places to start and where assignments might start with just trying in a small moment to start I guess, in a way, we don't talk that much about privilege in my classrooms, but only enough to know that it's not the end point in terms of the learning and the analysis. It's an interesting beginning to notice that there is such a thing and how you might have some and to start talking sort of more intersectionality and thinking about then, so what is this privilege that we started talking about? How does it play out? What does it do? In some ways, you are sounding a lot more hopeful and optimistic than where you ended in 2005. Is that fair? I was pretty new in my career when this was published. And as I say, it's out of my dissertation. So I think a lot of learning, subsequent learning has happened, being in classrooms and supervising students and sort of just doing more research in this area, but kind of looking at different things. So am I hopeful? Oh, I think maybe that's the wrong word. I think that I ended this paper with, we are stuck in this bind. Yes. That this paradox is almost impermeable. Like, what do we do with such a paradox? Yeah. I would argue that a lot of wonderful scholarship and teaching, particularly from social work educators of color, has changed classrooms as we go in terms of thinking, what are we trying to accomplish? So yes, this paradox sits there, but I don't think we have to be stuck in it because the two pieces that seem important to me is to rethink this notion of what self-awareness is is and does and what we do it for, and to actually take apart practice, to invite thinking social work practice differently. For example, Indigenous social workers are really sort of reimagining and have been all along, but now sort of in terms of my own reading and learning about it, reimagining what does Indigenous social work practice look like? And what are the the goals through that? I think that it's been really productive for me to kind of move to teaching in the classroom around, again, these ideas of common sense. So for example, in the last few years, I had the opportunity to design a graduate elective on environmental justice for social work. And that course has been a wonderful opportunity 
to kind of bring some of these concepts like what are we talking about with anti-racism, with whiteness, with representation? How do we depict the environment? And what? why is that useful? Why is it even relevant to a profession like social work? Because all these concepts, what I've learned is come home to roost in taking up some of these ideas around food security and food deserts and consuming, right? Being a good consumer. And many of the Indigenous students here have done a lot with thinking about traditional foods and feasts and sort of pulling together some of these ideas. So I've kind of jumped ahead. What I was trying to do in terms of thinking again about the way whiteness is universality and nothing and everything at the same time. And that's why I go back to what seems natural and common sense to you. So little things like I'll ask students to pause for a moment and imagine in their head an image of an environmentalist. And that can sometimes be revealing in terms of it's often someone young, it's often someone white, someone who's, you know, sort of the outdoorsy person. And I'm not saying it's always that way, but it has come up enough that it becomes an interesting interruption to that came out of somewhere. So now we have to unpack where do those underpinning assumptions come from? Yeah. And that's where I, I guess I'm saying I see the utility because by then we will have talked about environmental racism. We will have talked about racism and whiteness and white supremacy. But then when it comes to thinking about representation of the environment, nature, who's supposed to be in nature, who's that environmentalist that you picture, all these things reveal some of the ways in which it wasn't immediately apparent that this was a conversation about whiteness and colonial legacies and all of the ways in which the profession is steeped in it and, yeah. and that each of us is. But it was a moment of revealing, holy cow, isn't it interesting? That's what came up. Can I build on that and just read you something that really grabbed me from your article? Mm. Right, here we go. White power reproduces itself regardless of intention, power differences, and goodwill. And overwhelmingly, because it's not seen as whiteness, but as normal. We must begin by making whiteness strange. strange. Making the familiar strange. So many early scholars wrote about this, even using that phrase. And I just find it so helpful because it does kind of hit that idea of the universality, right? If it's the air you're breathing, then you're really kind of not seeing it. So that's where it has been so important, I think. And for sometimes for students, it's for white students in particular, it's this aha moment of what was so self-evident that it didn't even need to be explained or understood. So for that moment of you just read this or you just looked at this image, but this image required you to know stuff, that you had to mm. tap into what you think you know. And that very thing you tapped into reveals what you privilege. So there's a different use of privilege, right? It's not just a rote recitation of, I have these privileges in the world, but it does reveal what are the knowledges you privilege? What kinds of ways of knowing do you privilege? Well, I was thinking about, and even just when you were talking now, I was putting that all into my own experience in the courses that I sit with the students that I'm with. And what you're talking about, and what I think I see, is that that's a pretty heavy lift for students. 
That's rough business because you have to kind of, for the student who is having these ahas, you've kind of got to acknowledge or sometimes even abandon the privileges and a lot of the kind of ideology that has worked for you up until this point in your life and has informed almost every aspect of it. It's so important to talk about investments, right? Like Cheryl Harris's article, oldie but goodie, but whiteness is property. She's a legal scholar. And all the ways in which, like if you start to think about these privileges as the materiality of those benefits, right? Whiteness Mm -hmm. is property. Then we can start thinking in terms of how deeply we are invested in things being a certain way and the way they are. And then it becomes a question of, well, if I question this, what's at stake? Then from what's at stake, you can get to how far am I willing to go? And you know what? The other thing that, and I'm thinking about this in the most practical way, I'm kind of putting myself in that room while you're talking. And all of this is going on while there are people, students of color in the room with them, listening to them. I can imagine that that's no picnic for them either. To be having to to listen, for example, Two white students kind of have these realizations or come to that. Yeah, I mean, we are in diverse classrooms. And that's where I take very seriously the kind of learnings that I've had from students of color that have been in my classrooms and from some of my colleagues and a lot of what I read, right? Especially from educators and scholars of color trying to be ever more attuned to what does it mean to talk about positionality and different entry points in these classrooms. I don't want to get into moments of confession or these dramatic realizations of something. And maybe rightly or wrongly, I tend to go in my social work classes because I'm usually teaching more conceptual or sociological concepts and theory. And so I tend to go to that we're not just talking about white people here. We're talking about whiteness as a set of practices that's steeped in replicating forms of dominance. And we are all implicated and positioned in these kind of systems in different places. And some of us kind of just breeze through just fine things, and some of us do not. And some of us are impervious to all of it somehow. We haven't needed to see it because we haven't needed to, right? Whereas, you know, other students will be quite familiar with this, but it's even coming back to there is the kind of personal aha, but I think it's really important that it be consistently and continually linked to the systemic. All of this, it's built to replicate these kinds of practices. A big conversation in certainly my school and maybe across Canada is thinking about how do we decolonize social work and social work education. Mm -hmm. Here too. Okay. So this idea of decolonization and what we're talking about and to keep decolonizing that conversation alive within a broader context of anti-racist discourse to keep these two kind of wedded and informed, because otherwise it becomes a new binary, I think, between Indigenous peoples and white settlers. So I think that there's kind of a a vigilance needed to hold on to the complexity, but invite that kind of hard work. I'm not saying that it's easy work. And there are moments in classrooms, of course, where there's this immediacy, which is why one of the interesting things a colleague at Ryerson and I did as part of a research project was thinking about what happens to critical pedagogies when they go online, 
And part of that was these experiences of something happens in the classroom, right? There's this immediacy of response that you can do. That doesn't happen in asynchronous online courses. And so what is gained and what is lost? We're getting close to the end of our time here, but I just want to circle back because, you know, that vigilance and that like ongoing effort and complexity When we go back to the beginning of our discussion on how many students are clamoring for what to do in the here and now on Wednesday, when I go to my field placement, there's the rub in many ways, right? Those are the competing tensions in really students kind of moving through this. Absolutely. And I think sometimes it's as much as asking different questions. Sometimes it's as much as understanding this relationship, right? Sarah Ahmed's work, I like it very much, her utility of the idea of encounter. We are never just ourselves in these moments. We bring all of our context and all of our history, and we are mutually producing each other in these moments. And that's kind of a heady way of trying to talk about the messiness of trying to be with somebody, but also understanding that you are always being read and interpreted through these histories, right? And through this sort of current moment. And I go back to, that's what had me running back to grad school. This experience of, I was in Northern BC and I was a, a new child protection worker and I worked in several indigenous villages that we had to fly into. And, you know, we have our nice little briefcase that's stamped with the province of BC and we have authority. And I just remember, I wasn't a very good flyer in the small planes. And I just remember trying to be less nauseous while I stood on the dock and wondering about what am I doing here? In this moment, I don't have the language for it. I didn't then. I'm not sure, but I have a sense of unease. And the unease is I am the epitome. I'm white. I'm middle class. I'm standing here with my briefcase with authority, representing a profession that has had a terrible history with communities like this, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is bigger than me. You know that moment when you realize you wish you'd listened closer in your skills class because (laughs) now you'd probably finesse this when then you realize (laughs) that no, you would not finesse it. This is bigger than you. It's bigger than smiling enough. It's bigger than being the nicest, loveliest person you can be in this moment. This is about an entire colonial history that you Mm. embody in this moment. And in these encounters, that history and context will in part define this encounter. And that's social work. Yeah, it's almost like a legacy and a destiny in many ways. I mean, I often have similar thoughts when I stand in front of some of my courses. I'm all of the things you are and male. And so I wonder like, what am I doing? Why am I the one speaking here? It's really a time for a certain degree, I think, of vulnerability and authenticity. And humility. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I guess to me, it's about honoring everybody who has taught me so much along the way and being very grateful to people who've written and taken the time to help me better understand and sometimes just trying to, I guess, help students with this. I mean, we're back to this paradox of you're being asked to dig deep and be different to an end. And that end isn't just self-awareness. That's the beginning. (laughs) And then it's thinking about, well, what would practice look like here if we did it differently? 
does it always have to be done? And I think it's, you know, it's interesting even just interpreting policy. I, I think about that. I think about administration in the institution, in the academy, as scholarly work, where these policies really need to be read through this critical lens for, do we always do it this way? Do we always have to do it this way? What are we trying to accomplish even in terms at the level of faculty or higher thinking about what do these policies do? And is that the outcome we wanted? And is there a way in which these two are simply steeped in a universality and common senseness that is antithetical to the kinds of changes we want to make? Yeah. And what is our role in moving it forward? It's certainly a lot easier not to think about it and to perpetuate it. Donna, thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. We're really grateful and we really wanted you to be the person that we spoke to about this. I, I know it's a busy time and I know we chased you. So from all of us, I'm really grateful. It's been a pleasure. It's been nice to meet you too. This is just really important as we move forward through this decolonizing work. So thank you. A final note, thanks again to Donna Jeffrey. If you would like to link to the article we spoke about, you can haul that in on researchgate.net where the full text is available. And while you're on the web already, please go to the In Social Work podcast webpage at insocialwork.org where you'll find links to every podcast we've ever made. And while you're already there, please consider commenting, reviewing, or letting us know what you would like to hear about on our podcast series. We also want to shout out to Nancy Smith, the Dean of the UB School of Social Work, who first provided the inspiration and resources for our podcast 11 years ago. Nancy is stepping down as Dean after 16 years and after a break, we'll be returning to our faculty. Caitlin Bears, Michelle Melton, and Steve Sturman are the In Social Work podcast team. I'm Peter Sabota, and we'll see you next time, everybody.